Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with litigation partner Ed Boxa. Ed is out of Foley's Orlando office, and in this discussion, he reflects on growing up in Fairfax County, Virginia, and attending the University of Virginia for both undergrad and law school. Ed, I think to many, is a fixture of the firm and is specifically regarded for his tremendous work elevating pro bono at Foley and Lardner. But in addition to this, Ed is a trial lawyer with a practice primarily focused on construction-related litigation. But before I get him to talk about any of that, I get him to reflect on the years of practice before he joined Foley. In particular, he highlights the two years that he served as a public defender and also his time at another litigation firm before joining Foley about 10 years into his career. This conversation was a lot of fun for me and that it's a little bit different in that we don't really do a deep dive into Ed's practice. So if you're hoping to hear about the ins and outs of being a litigator, you can also listen to another one of my episodes. But because Ed has served in so many leadership capacities at Foley and Lardner, I have to get him to talk about being office managing partner of Orlando, serving on Foley's management committee, and serving on the firm's compensation committee. And something I really appreciate about Ed, in addition to the many funny stories he shares, is he does this amazing job of sharing what I'll call the ethos of Foley and Lardner and making it just how clear Foley's culture is one where we put people first. So listen to that. I think it's apparent, but I really appreciate how he shared some really candid and honest stories that showed exactly that. So this episode does run a little bit long, but I hope you stick with me through the whole thing. And in particular for the end of it, where you'll hear Ed talk about the way that he really helped grow Foley's pro bono practice as chair of Foley's national pro bono committee. And also he provides some wonderful advice. One of my favorite tidbits of advice he shares is how as a lawyer, the game is really fast when you first start, but as you get further into your career, the game slows down. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ed Baxa. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Let's get started how I always start these shows, which is, can you give a brief professional introduction? Sure. I'm Ed Boxa. I'm a uh, construction litigator in the Orlando office. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. I spent my entire childhood there and then um, before going down to the University of Virginia for both undergraduate and graduate school. All right. So we're going to definitely talk a bit about that. But before we get there, I want you to paint a picture for me. You said, you said where you spent your childhood. Say I found you, I don't know, late elementary school, early middle school. Paint a picture for me. What are what are you into? What is little, little Ed doing? So... Pretty much throughout my childhood and, and in through high school, sports was the ultimate driver in my life. Uh, baseball and football, you know, that was before the days of organized sports. And uh, uh, as a young kid, we played on the playground every single day, baseball and baseball season, football and football season, and then Little League and Babe Ruth League and Boys Club. And then before playing both of those sports in high school. So I was, in fact, 
when I had did book reports in school, the nuns were always trying to get me to write about something other than sports because that's all all I ever did was read sports books and um, write book reports on them. You also mentioned this is before the organized sports. So before people were maybe overscheduling their children and having them on 80, 80 different travel leagues, there was a time where it was just like parents were like, get out of the house, leave, don't come back. And for you, that was going off and playing baseball or football or whatever with the neighborhood kids is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, just to sort of give you a uh, an age or a, a time uh, reference there, the beltway around Washington had not been built when I was a kid. And as they were building it, we would ride our bikes on the, the portions of the beltway that had been uh, started. And um, I mean, the concept of doing that now is just like so incomprehensible. That's amazing. I've spent some time in DC, so I can I can sort of conjure that that imagery in my head. That's amazing. I'm also getting almost like a Sandlot esque sort of vibe. Like, <laughs> oh, very much so, very much so. I mean, um, you know, the great thing about that was when you played in that environment, there were no parents, there were no umpires, there were no referees, and you had to work it out. And sometimes that working it out was screaming at each other and grabbing your stuff and going home, but you only had the same get people to play with every day. So you sort of went back at it the next day. And I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that those sorts of interpersonal problem solving things uh, came in handy later on in life. And I think that we have some risk of those kinds of skills not developing when the parents are always the arbiter and they're so, oh, Johnny, don't do that. Don't do this. And Well, the bottom line is pushing your kid out there in the world is scary regardless. And it's nice to let them figure things out when they're young. You know, I have my kids are right currently nine and 11. And I will definitely remind myself there were children, I don't know, running farm equipment at some point who were as old as my middle schooler. It's okay if he walks two blocks, right? Like he'll be okay. But I don't want to say too much because we're in a sensitive time right now. But I think we have a, a shared understanding there. You also mentioned the nuns at school. So it sounds like you went to, I'm going to guess, is it, was it Catholic school? or? Yeah, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through uh, high school. We had nuns in the uh, grade school. And then when I went to high school, I first was at a Christian Brothers uh, military school. When I tell people I went to a Catholic military school, they said, what did you do? Kill somebody? I mean, you know what? Uh, (laughs) Right. Why'd they send you there? Why'd you get sent away? Exactly. And then, uh, but I only stayed there for one year. I think the military and I was was not really a good match. And then I had priests that taught at the second uh, high school that I went to. And my biology teacher, Father Smith, actually performed our wedding ceremony years later. So I want to hear a little more about high school. But first, I do want to hear a bit about I don't know, your, your family, siblings, parents. Just tell me, tell me a bit about them. Yeah, so uh, good American story there. My father's people were wheat farmers from Kansas. And my mom's people were coal miners from eastern Pennsylvania. And they both joined uh, the service in World War II. Uh, My dad was in the Army Air Corps and uh, mom was in the Navy. And they met at George Washington University in D.C. on the GI Bill. And they met the Catholic Student Center there. And uh, dad um, then um, got his master's in public administration at American University after GW and worked in the Pentagon for the Air Force for 40 years. And mom became a teacher. And in fact, she taught at my grade school, which was really suboptimal. I mean, she was suboptimal. right there, you know. <laughs> Mother, I like I liked the description, suboptimal. Maybe not how you would have described it during grade school, 
but in retrospect, that's how we'll characterize it. I also have to acknowledge the American University connection. That's where I went for undergrad. As did Scott Ellis in the Houston office. We were actually, we overlapped by a few years. It's it's not every day that I hear AU mentioned in any context. But of course, if you're in the DC area, it comes up. It comes up a lot more. But now take me back to high school and a little bit in terms of, say, what you were up to in high school. Did it continue to be sports? But then let's transition into that, that decision-making process for college. It was an interesting time to grow up in DC. So it was... I started high school in um, 1967, and the high school that I started at St. John's in Washington, that was the Catholic military school, we actually had military science taught to us by a retired sergeant major in the Army. That was second period. Seventh period, we had religion, and the Christian brother who taught that was a big anti-war guy. So in the morning, Sergeant Hackett would tell us what a hippie Bobby Kennedy was and how bad he was. And then after lunch, Brother Charles would tell us how we ought to be down at the monument grounds protesting against the war. That sort of continued pretty much through my entire high school. I I transferred to a high school in Alexandria, and it was sort of the same deal. The war in Vietnam was really picking up. And it's strange for me because, and all my friends, because everybody's dad was in the military or worked for the military in the neighborhood that I worked for. And so dad worked at the Pentagon. And I remember Abby Hoffman and his pals showed up there for two weeks and they were throwing blood and stuff on the guys as they were going in. And my freshman year, and while again, back in Washington, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was uh, assassinated while I was there. And, And our high school, we had rifles. We had rifles to march around with. They didn't have firing pins, but the National Guard came and surrounded our school because it was a concern that uh, folks would want to liberate our armory. Um, And I remember the brothers coming on the loudspeaker that day saying, okay, we're going to let you out of school, but don't ride the following bus lines because there was unrest there in, in Washington. And that was it was that sort of thing throughout high school. It was a really provocative time to be growing up and to have your formative years in the midst of such a social upheaval that was played out really all the time in Washington, all the time, demonstrations of various sorts on both against the war and then the civil rights uh, activity as well. It was it was. Uh, it was a wild time to be a kid. Yeah, I think you're somewhat reflecting the experience my parents had, you know, that teenager in the late 60s. Like you said, it was, a. I think it's an understatement to say it was an interesting time, but let alone to be in the D.C. area also. So what made you decide on UVA for college? Oh, that was a hard decision. My father told me I could go anywhere I wanted as long as it was in-state in Virginia. The world is your oyster in Virginia, yes. Right, right. So at that time, the really on, the only candidates besides UVA were um, Virginia Tech, which was really more considered to be, uh, I mean, a true engineering school then. In fact, it was VPI, Virginia Polytechnical Institute then. So I wasn't going there because I was horrible in science. And I, I did visit William and Mary, but I went down there and like everybody was studying when I was there. And I, I thought, God, this must be really hard. I can't <laughs> go there. So what was so it? So then it became, oh, it, it, it was I, it was UVA. And, and I didn't even know 
I knew nothing about what was offered from a curriculum standpoint at Virginia when I went there. I just went there. Just went. There you go. We're going to UVA. So what did you focus on or what did, what did you think you wanted to do? What was your major? I was, I had a double major in psychology and religious studies. And uh, I picked the religious studies up later because I was taking a lot of electives in the religious studies department. And uh, I got to the point where I had so many credits, I might as well. But psychology, and I thought I wanted to be a high school guidance counselor. That is very specific. Did you have a, a great high school guidance counselor? What made you? Maybe it was just the opposite. That I <laughs> thought that, that'll do it too, by the way. Real, somebody who's great or not so great. A real need for uh, somebody normal as a guidance counselor, I think, maybe. But from what I know from your bio... That, you know, and the fact that you're sitting here at Foley right now, that is not what you ended up doing. When did the let's go to law school thing come in? Well, this is a true story. My roommates were all taking the law boards. And so I honestly, there were no lawyers in our family. My parents had, I think, one friend who was a lawyer. Honestly, the only thing I knew about law was uh, Perry Mason, the old Perry Mason's show. And uh, I thought, well, I'll take the law boards. I mean, why not? And uh, I actually went to a rock concert the night before the law boards. I saw a guitar player named Leo Kotke, and, and he was playing with Emmy Lou Harris, the uh, fabulous uh, uh, country rock singer. And I stayed out real late and um, took the law boards the next day and smoked them. And um, then the conclusion was, well, obviously I should be a lawyer. Clearly this is meant to be. That is the story. I'd, I'd like to be, you know, and it, it always makes me laugh because when I interview, you know, candidates for Foley out of law school, you know, we're always talking about, well, do they, does, does she have a plan? Does yes, he have a so plan? They know. And I go, well, I had no plan. Yes. So. Well, that's also one thing that this podcast shows. I mean, it does a lot, but it does show that we're all just figuring it out. And some of us, there's a few guests, like maybe even like myself, who are like, I'm going straight to law school and here's how and here's why. Granted, I don't practice as an attorney anymore, so maybe I'm not the best example. But I think it makes it real to show, because now, Ed, you know, we're going to talk about your path at Foley and being on the management committee and an office managing partner and all this stuff. It can kind of feel nice to hear someone say, no, I I didn't know exactly <laughs> how my path was going to unfold. Yeah, I think two things about that. One, I remember like it was yesterday being waiting in the in the vestibule of the building where we took the uh, law boards. And this woman that I knew uh, was like you. She always wanted to be a lawyer. And she said, I don't know what I'll do if I don't do well on this test. And I, I'm sure she was nervous. And I don't know if she performed well or performed at her best. But I mean, I, for me, it was just such a, I think it was a real advantage because I just didn't care if I, you know, it was sort of however this might go. And then the other thing is what you say. I mean, that, you know, you can come at this from a lot of different angles. And um, even once you are a lawyer, you can bounce off a lot of walls and head in a, in a bunch of alternate directions that you didn't anticipate. So, And a lot of it, or at least a, a fair amount of it's actually not within your control. And I don't know if we'll get as into that, but I know you've seen where somebody's practice as, you know, X sort of lawyer for a decade, and then a law was passed. And that practice is now gone. Now it's gone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 
So there's all kinds of stuff like that. But okay, you do well. You're like, all right, I'm clearly meant to be an attorney. So where do you go for law school? Well, I I went to the University of Virginia. I mean, it was right there. And uh, I did well enough to get in there. And it it was incredibly inexpensive as an in-state student. I cannot remember if it was $750 or $1,000. I mean, and granted, I'm really old. But I mean, the change in the pricing was amazing. So I had no loans or anything. I'm sorry, that number you just said, like that's a year? A sem- like what was that? A semester? Like I think it was a semester. It almost doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Right. It was a day. It was. Yeah. It was a day. <laughs> that's kind of what it is now. That's almost what it would add up. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It probably would be about like that. No, I know. Yeah. I know. Listeners, yeah. particularly those in law school right now, you hear this and you're just like, "What?" And the thing is, we know that the cost of higher education and even focusing on law schools has completely outpaced anything related to, say, inflation or anything else. There's a whole bunch of other things going on, but here's here's proof. Things have very much changed, and we're all living that now. But so you go to UVA for law school. What was that experience like for you? It was disorienting. I, as was the case with my undergraduate career, I really had no idea when I got there what I would take and what you had to take. So they gave us as first year students um, a schedule. You didn't have any choice. And I couldn't believe I had a class called contracts. I mean, somebody had told me that there was something called torts. So I wasn't surprised about that. But it's like contracts, really? Wow, that's weird. And I think that as an undergraduate, I took the most liberal of liberal arts courses you could possibly imagine. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about accounting. I didn't know anything about business. And so for me, you know, the case law method, I always thought was sort of like the biblical parables, right? The idea is that we're going to teach you an abstract concept by giving you this everyday life example, except I didn't understand the everyday life examples because they were so frequently business oriented. And I didn't know about this stuff. And so when I was in law school, they they practiced the Socratic method big time. So I studied very defensively. You know, I, I did little briefs on each of the cases and I wanted to be able to just not be embarrassed, you know, when they called on me. So I knew the facts and I sort of would be able to recite the holding or whatever. But I realized when I got to the end of the semester, I really didn't I didn't get the point at all. And that's why I say it was defensive studying. I didn't see the big picture. And I remember Virginia had exams after Christmas. First semester exams were after Christmas. So I went home to D.C. And, or Northern Virginia, and I, I studied for two weeks by myself in the George Mason University Library. And I, I had really no idea what was going to happen. And I remember being pretty sanguine about it and thinking, well... I got no clue what's going on here. And maybe if I don't do well, then this just wasn't what I was meant for. I mean, it was it was like that. Now, happily, I was at school at the time when Virginia adhered to something called a gentleman's B, which basically was, it was pretty hard to get less than a B unless you really were 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 really awful anyway. So I, and in fact, got all Bs the first semester. <laughs> so you made it through. But what you just said, I think is really important actually hasn't changed when it comes to law school. I do know there's maybe some newer ways of teaching. There's some more interesting clinics and classes, but I know I have that same issue where you're, you know, things are important and you want to be able to answer the question, but did I understand the macro? I mean, I remember, and I'm not going to quite get this right, but it's a little bit embarrassing to me. I remember at the end of con law, 
the end, the end of the class, probably shortly before the exam being like, oh, wait, these are the powers of the federal government. (laughs) Right. Civil procedure. Somehow I missed the point that, well, it's just the rules. It's just (laughs) the freaking rules. Because we had a guy that had been the dean of the Alabama Law School, and he was a hide the ball expert. And, you know, you start out talking about Panoyer versus Neff and jurisdiction. And it's like, what is going on? I get, it's so just kind of discombobulating. I remember in my Civ Pro, we started at summary judgment. We started at Rule 56 because it corresponded with where we happen to be in legal writing. And they decided that was a good idea. And if you want to confuse somebody who doesn't really know what's going on, <laughs> start at Rule 56. Heck, though, I was seven, what, six, seven years into practice before it really occurred to me that I was like, those are just the rules. Because I'd always ask this one partner questions, and she would pull down the rules of civil procedure, open it up and be like, well, rule, you know, name the rule says X. And I'd just be like, wow, all I have to do is read the rules. <laughs> read the rules. <laughs> so- It's so it's so terrible. It sounds like borderline malpractice. Don't worry, everyone. I was being supervised. I never did anything that wasn't. But there's (laughs) but I think there's a lot of that with being a lawyer. And you know, I I can speak more to being a litigator. And of course, that's what you are as well. That really is confusing in your early years of practice. And maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about that. But let's get you through law school. So I also know from your bio that after law school, you didn't jump straight into practice, but you stayed on as a law fellow at UVA. So speak. tell me about that. I was interested in criminal defense, which was really sort of bizarre at Virginia. Nobody wanted to do that. The thing about Virginia at the time, 900 employers came to interview. You know, they talk about how many interviews can you get. They had to limit the number of them. You couldn't have more than 30. And it was all, of course, corporate practice and all that stuff. And I had no interest in that. And somewhere along the line, so I took, you know, a criminal defense clinic and all this stuff, a class called welfare litigation, law and psychiatry. And and I got real interested in the whole law and psychiatry thing. And um, they had the class that they taught on that was actually a practice thing. And they, you were assigned to this clinic where... We had a multidisciplinary team of psychiatrists, psychologists, lawyers, social workers, and we did forensic evaluations of criminal defendants. And so the students would sit in on the interviews and write up the cases. And and we were both doing the evaluations for lawyers whose clients uh, had been charged with crimes, but we were also teaching community mental health professionals on how to do the forensic evaluations. And so while we were there, I met everybody on Virginia's death row because all of those people were evaluated because at that point in time, uh, one of the aggravating factors, statutory aggravating factors in capital cases was the defendant's propensity for dangerousness. And even though all the literature indicated that mental health professionals cannot predict dangerousness, it was admissible in court to have a psychiatrist. In fact, there was a guy down in Texas, they called him Dr. Death because he, he was the state's uh, psychiatric expert. And he, of course, uh, always weighed in on the dangerousness of these uh, people on death row. So that was really interesting to me. I, it was actually a two-year program. Then as a fellow, the first year I ran a um, legal aid society in a state psychiatric hospital in Stanton, Virginia. And then the second year I was the director of the forensic clinic. And um, yeah, a really unusual path. I put it on my resume as 
law and medicine because it's just so weird. Well, and how then do we get you down to Florida and how do we get you to Foley and Lardner? So what happens next? I wanted to be a public defender. Like I said, I, I wanted to do criminal defense. And of course, unlike, you know, Foley and civil practice firms, PD offices don't fly you down to visit them. And I decided I wanted to be somewhere in the Southeast or the Southwest because I had become, um, I just couldn't stand cold weather anymore. It wasn't that cold in Virginia, but every spare dime that we had, we we spent on record albums and beer and, and not uh, heating our cat. We live in a cabin out in the woods, I mean, four other guys, a bunch of dogs. And uh, I was just so sick of being cold that it was going to be the Southeast or the Southwest. And so again, kind of a temporal reference, Eastern Airlines was still in existence at this point in time. And Eastern had a deal where you could fly anywhere in America in a 21-day period for 420 bucks. So I got interviews in Orlando, Key West, Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, San Francisco, and Atlanta. And uh, I went to those places in a 21-day period. You were true to your word, Southeast, Southwest. There you yeah, go. <laughs> and uh, it came down to Orlando and Phoenix. And Phoenix was attractive because I was going to, it looked like I was going to be able to teach part-time or adjunct at Arizona State. That was the desert. It was way out there. And, and uh, so Orlando, too, they were starting a new capital case division in the public defender's office there. And... I was going to be assigned to the capital case division and uh, also do all the psychiatric defense cases, even though I had never been in a courtroom or tried a case, which there's more to that story. But anyway, so I took the job here in Orange County, Florida as a PD, came down for two weeks, uh, took two weeks off to study for the bar, went back to Virginia and got married, came back two weeks later and started practicing and real. And, um, about a month after I had been here, the guy who hired me lost the first contested election in the history of the orange County public defender's office. And so the capital case division and the special psychiatric defense thing, I was gone. So it was all gone, all gone. Like within two months of my first law job, whole thing different gone. Now, as it turned out, best thing that ever happened. I mean, I was no, I was in, I certainly could not have performed adequately at that level. And so I became a misdemeanor lawyer like everybody else. And at, at that point in time, homelessness was just being recognized as an issue. And uh, so Orlando's choice was to criminalize basically being homeless. You, it was a crime to sleep on a park bench and stuff like this. So the very first thing that I did as a public defender was had all those ordinances declared unconstitutional. And my wife was a nurse at the big hospital downtown at the time. And she, and she came back, she said, my friends want to know again, why you want these people sleeping on the park benches? And it's like, oh, is that pesky constitution? I don't like, know. I didn't say I wanted them. I just don't think it's, should be, I think it should be a crime. And I'm already seeing the connections now because we have, of course, haven't touched on it yet, but you're the chair of Foley's pro bono committee. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't sort of know that origin story and I know we'll, we'll get there, but so then what happens next? How long were you a public defender? Well, I was there uh, two years, two months and two days. But who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, after the first year, which was really so much fun, I tried, I don't know, 17 jury trials in a year. 
all of which I won. Wow. Yeah, it was like insane. And it was really because in misdemeanor court, I mean, you can have a jury trial in Orlando for a $3 petty theft. And so what I like to do was back in those days, if you were called for jury duty, you were on for a week and it didn't matter if you sat on it, you had to stay your whole week. So I like to do cases at the end of the week. And I like to have jurors who had been on some serious felony jury previously because the cases we were trying were so like minuscule, you know, not important at all and frequently hilarious. And um, that was a lot of fun. What a great way to get experience. You you went in having, of course, had no trial experience to just trial after trial after trial. I had 40 cases set for trial every Monday. I can't imagine. And I know they're relatively short trials, but still. Turning the inventory, you know, just crazy. And so I did that for about a year. And then I got promoted to felony division where I had, um, I think, nine trials in a year, nine felony. And I, and I did not do nearly as well. That was serious business. And I had a couple of capital cases. One, I resulted in a plea to a lesser second, a second degree murder. It's kind of an unfortunate situation. My client was a 50 year old woman who only had one prior and it was for murder. <laughs> so oh, geez. Kind of bad. Like you, that's the defense lawyer. She only had one prior. <laughs> right. But was for Well, and in fact, the case I had, she had killed her common law husband. And unfortunately, the her prior offense was for killing her boyfriend. And as the judge said at sentencing, uh, Ms. So-and-so, I don't really think you're a uh, threat to the public at large. Just those unfortunate enough to fall in love with you. Regrettably, there's no way to like let people know. Oh my gosh. That's, I, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> so I, um, after a year of that, I mean, I had seven murder cases on my docket at one time. Now I'm two years out of law school at this point. I got an ulcer, so I couldn't do that work anymore. Yeah. Talk about I, the stress. Well, and also just for context, particularly for some of the law students. So when you say 17 trials or nine trials, my context, and I did, I worked for the public defender service in DC as an intern. So I do have some frame of reference for that work. And I know the nature of the trials is a bit different, but still trials, trial to some extent. We have litigators or trial lawyers now in large law firms. If they say they did two trials or if you had four trials in one year, that is like, oh my gosh, how did you survive the year? <laughs> so that's why my eyes just kind of, I could see my eyes kind of bug out a little bit when he said the numbers. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. It was insane. And I will say this, that part of the ulcer thing, like I remember one time, I, me- I remember when I knew it was over, I was trying a, um, a rape and robbery case and I had a murder trial first degree murder trial set for the ensuing Monday. And so I was on lunch breaks in the rape case, making calls about witnesses for the case the next week. And it was just so clear that this was not due process. This was just, I couldn't do this anymore. So what did you decide to do next? What happens next? Well, I went to work for a small local civil practice firm 12, I was the 12th lawyer. And I did some insurance defense and some commercial litigation. And the commercial litigation was mostly for developers 
and became frequently involved construction issues. That firm turned out to be the most interesting place. Uh, in a very short period of time, we grew to 70 lawyers. We did the Orlando Magic deal. One of our partners was one of the owners of the Orlando Magic. We did the Universal Studios deal. And so, I mean, small firm, big clients, my boss, the senior partner, we were all under 50 years old. The oldest guy in the firm was 50. My boss had been Jimmy Carter's top fundraiser in Florida. So we had all these political connections and so forth and always meeting famous people at barbecues in his backyard. And so that was great fun. And that's sort of how I got interested in construction. It was, again, serendipity. It was just what, what we needed to have done there. And we didn't have anybody that did that kind of work. And unfortunately, after eight years there, I had a new house and a new baby. And um, the savings and loan crisis hit. And my bosses, in addition to being the senior partners of the law firm, also had their own savings and loan. And although they were never charged with any wrongdoing per se, uh, the regulatory capital requirements uh, had pushed that bank under. And uh, the bank was 25% of the business of the law firm. And we didn't know at when the bank got taken over by the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, what exactly that was going to... I mean, owners of banks were getting indicted during that period of time, and we didn't know if that was going to happen. We There were civil suits and that kind of stuff. And so we kind of figured... And we were all like in our 30s, you know, I just made partner. And um, they had my, you know, I had paid 25 grand, you know, to buy into the equity. And, and my retirement, such as it was, was all in stock of the bank. It's like, no. So we sort of figured that we might be able to get through it, but it would probably take three years and we'd be lucky to get any new clients during that three years. And we all, we just decided to shut the law firm. And this law firm that within the, preceding five years had done the magic and the universal studios deals. So with different groups of us interviewed at different places. And, um, you know, the last really group that I talked to was Foley. As a matter of fact, I thought uh, I was likely to stay with uh, one of, yeah, I talked to Baker Hostetler. I talked to Shetson Bowen. I talked to Greenberg, all these different people. And uh, it ended up being Foley. And, um, that was 1990, and I really thought it was a short-term thing. I mean, I never saw myself as a big firm person. I mean, public defender, 12-person firm. Oh, sure, sure. These smaller shops, sure. Not for me. But let's see how it goes. <laughs> well, I want to do something safe, right? I thought for we were rolling into a sort of a mini recession at that point in time, and uh, the Tax Reform Act of 1986 had really kicked in, and it had changed the valuation on all kinds of real property. And yeah, I just landed there here and um, it worked out. Well, I'm sort of smiling to myself because early when I said the thing about there's a lot that's outside of your control, I had no idea what your story was going to be, but I think you've really exemplified that. A number of things can happen. You try things, some things you find out that you know they don't suit you as well as you thought they would, or external events happen. So basically at this point, you are over a decade or so into your time as a practicing attorney and you had to you had to pivot 
you had to change. And that pivot took you to Foley and Lardner. Before Ed and I got on the podcast, we were just talking about Foley just had its big attorney retreat. And I made the comment, you know, you've seen Foley grow tremendously over your time at the firm. And you shared that you are employee number 275. Number 275. (laughs) Right. And we didn't have, we, we had, it was Milwaukee, Madison, DC, Chicago, and Florida. That was it. There was no New York, Boston, Detroit, California. That's a lot less than the 25 offices and 1,100 lawyers we have now. I was fortunate enough to have a friend send me the Foley and Lardner, what, 1842 to 1992, the book, the biography that I've was written. I've got that book. Of course I've you got do. That book of course over you there do. Book. So yeah. someone sent that to me before I started. And I actually, given that I'm from Wisconsin and with Foley's you know, founding office being in Milwaukee. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I read it. Now, I'll admit, I skimmed through a lot of the legal stuff. I was less interested in that. But I wanted to know the genesis of what order the offices were, how the names changed. And I think Foley basically went from Milwaukee, is was it Milwaukee to Florida to DC or Milwaukee, DC, Florida? It was something like that. You might guess like, oh, Madison, Chicago. No, no, no. Foley jumped from Milwaukee to the, the East Coast before it opened either of those offices. So you started at Foley and you've touched on the, you know, the construction law expertise, but also being a general commercial litigator. So what was your practice like in the earlier days? This is a really, um, I mean, my story is is sort of like the evolution of, an example of the evolution of Foley becoming a national kind of firm, because the way it was done, the way the expansion was done was they they merged with little firms in all these different cities. And the practices remained really insular. Like it, the Jacksonville lawyers had Jacksonville clients and the Orlando lawyers had Orlando clients. And so as a result, you know, we were real active in the community. You know, that was, I mean, the local community. And marketing such as there was, was always local. I say such as there was because in Milwaukee, this was a great sort of uh, tension point between Milwaukee and the other offices. Foley Milwaukee had such a fabulous reputation and it was a safe choice and it was it was the best law firm. There was no question about it. Of course you'd go to Foley. I'd be on a plane, I'd be going up to Milwaukee for a meeting and I, somebody from Milwaukee would be sitting next to me and they'd say, well, you know, who do you work for? I say Foley. Oh my goodness. I know, you know you're, it's important. You're a big deal. Yes. And they couldn't understand the leadership of the firm in Milwaukee really just didn't get the whole Florida thing, you know, like, well, why didn't you, you, what do you mean you have to do marketing or what do you, what do you mean? You know, you can't charge these rates. It's tell them you're Foley. It's like, so it's a very local practice. And again, back in that point in time, real estate and real estate development was a huge part of the Florida practice in general. I remember when I became Orlando OMP, we started having Florida meetings and uh, we sort of, concluded that like a third of the business in the firm was real estate, a third was corporate, but it was really corporate work for real estate clients, and a third was litigation. There was a little more in regulatory and uh, government affairs type stuff, but, but real estate and real estate development was the functional equivalent of the Milwaukee corporate practice in terms of driving all the other practices in the firm, so litigation, tax, whatever. We didn't have a corporate, we didn't have corporate clients like, and we didn't do M&A. What we did was real estate development. And that was the whole 
state at that point in time. So that's that continued to work well for my construction practice because Florida was just like growing like crazy then. So the airport was a big client here in the Orlando office. And as a result, the airport was always growing. And that was, a, I didn't happen to work on the airport client. I worked mostly for contractors. And um, the way I made those relationships was I belonged to the Associated General Contractors of America. I got on the legislative committee and I, I taught seminars on contracts to project managers through the AGC. And so, I mean, it was Tuesday nights, Tuesdays and Thursday nights for two and a half hours for six weeks at a time. And see that contracts class helped. See, it was a good thing you took that contracts class. <laughs> Just well, but there's a couple of things you said I want to follow up on. One about how Foley's grown. So something, one little known fact that I, I'm sure you know, but listeners won't know. So in Chicago, the a firm that Foley, and I think it was Foley already had presence, but got bigger in Chicago by merging with a firm called Hopkins and Sutter. And Hopkins and Sutter actually, I don't know what year it was, but Barack Obama was a summer associate at Hopkins and Sutter. So often when you hear about the Obamas, you only hear about Sidley, right? Because that's where, so his 1L summer, he was at Hopkins and Sutter, which is, you know, technically Foley. And then 2L, he goes to Sidley and he meets Michelle Obama, the rest is history. But, but I was like, hey, we have a little bit of a claim there, a little bit of a claim there, but also... I remember the Hopkins merger. I was here when that happened. Yep. Yeah. I remember. So I was a summer associate at Foley, like maybe five years after that merger. And I think I could still feel some of the ramifications. You could still, you, like, you knew kind of who was a Hopkins person. And I think, you know, we know that Foley since uh, merged with Gardeer, and there actually hasn't been that dynamic in the same way. So it's interesting to see. But also something that I think as a law student or a junior lawyer, you often don't think a lot about are the, the history, the origins of your firm, how they've grown in what markets, in what practice areas. And frankly, it can actually really inform a lot of dynamics at your firm that may or may not seem relevant to the behemoth that the firm likely is now, but it actually is. And so I think there's a lot of tidbits in this show that speak to how Foley grew. And you can also see sort of what, what our culture is, what our ethos is, and why it is almost based on that history. So I appreciate you for sharing some of that. And the, my challenge, whenever I get our more senior partners on the podcast is, I have a lot of ground to cover because Ed, you've been office managing partner of Orlando. You're on the firm's management committee and also really integral to our pro bono efforts. And of course, we won't cover all of that in the next you know, 10 or so minutes. But I guess I want to break this down in a couple of ways. I want to get your reflections on having, you know, you still are, but being a, a firm leader and getting the opportunities to even do that at Foley or any organization. How was it that you were able to have such tremendous leadership opportunities, advice to others? And then I want to transition to like, we have to talk pro bono. Everybody at this room will be mad at me if I don't get, if I don't talk pro bono with Ed Bax. <laughs> but let's talk leadership first. Well, so this is sort of funny. We Office managing partners here, OMPs, were not called OMPs when I started. Are you aware of that? It was partner in charge. PIC. So the partner in charge of the Orlando office when I started was this uh, gigantic guy, Edgerton Vandenberg. And Van and Mike Gay's father started the Orlando office. It was Van. And so Mike Gay is our current chair of the litigation. Yeah. So it was Vandenberg, Gay, and Burke. And uh, then later Vandenberg, Gay, Burke, Wilson, and Arkin. You may know Gordon Arkin. And um, so Van was 6'5" gigantic guy and very important person in town and so forth. And so 
uh, he was getting near retirement and he stepped aside and the his first replacement was a guy named duke woodson and so duke became the pic but around here we said van remained the partner really in charge and if you think about that acronym that was sort of <laughs> man was a pretty tough guy we won't spell it out <laughs> we won't say it but everybody's smart they could figure it out <laughs> and duke uh lasted a, about a year and we had a secession vote we I'd only been at the firm for a year or two or something, and we had a vote among our partners about whether we were going to stay in Foley or not, and the vote was nine to eight to stay. And after the vote, Duke resigned as OMPIC, and um, so Mike Greeby, who was the CEO at the time, asked me if I would do it. Like, why me? I had come from the prior law firm with seven guys, six or seven. and we were a lot more aggressive and a lot more entrepreneurial than, than the Foley guys were. And there was some concern that we were too volatile and might leave. And so I, I think I was seen as a bridge between the existing firm and these, these new guys. And so I, and again, just so ironic. I mean, I didn't want to be at a big firm and now I was in this administrative position and I had never, I had no training. I had never run, you know, anything. And, um, as a testament to how good I was, my pals eventually did leave the firm and started their own firm. So the experiment didn't But we really got our tentacles into you though. See, exactly. <laughs> exactly. you got me. So I was OMP for 12 years. Wow. I didn't realize that was the tenure. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. Well, the way the tenure work around here was, is it, how long is your term? And it's like, until it's up, until you it's, know, until and, it's time for change until we're sick of you. <laughs> In fact, I went to see Mike Greeby after a few years and I, because I wanted to quit. I didn't want to be OMP anymore. And um, Mike put me off for the longest time. And, and he finally agreed to have dinner with me on Mother's Day in Chicago. And so I went up there, had a nice dinner with Mike, and I told him all the reasons that I didn't want to, you know, be OMP anymore. And at the end of the dinner, he kind of nodded his head and he goes, you know, I'm pretty happy with the way things are. And so I went back home and Susan said, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, we had a great dinner. And Mike told me he was pretty happy with the way things are. And she's looked at me like I was from Mars or something. He politely declined your request. <laughs> he got a few more years out of you. But I also think it's really interesting because, you know, the firm, so while this is all happening, Foley's growing. I sometimes liken myself and we've had a lot of more recent, more senior level business professionals come to Foley. And really helping Foley continue to evolve. Because for a firm to be around for this long, 180, I think, plus years at this point, there's this need for continued evolution. And the way that office managing partners, that role has evolved, the way just just elevating it. And there's now, when you step into the OMP role now, it's very clear in terms of expectations. Here's what you need to do. Here's what we expect you to do. But also really looking at things that we look at an office basis, we look at a practice basis, we look at a department basis. And that's also something those new to law don't, understand. They don't necessarily understand how the office works with, has practice groups, part of the broader departments and all that stuff. Yeah. And I, I kind of bragged and said, that's sort of my story was the Foley story. And let me explain what I meant by that, because it, it dovetails to what you were just talking about. So my mission, I didn't understand much about the day-to-day -day operations or, or how to do day-to-day -day operations. And in fact, that was probably good for me because I had a wonderful office administrator and I just 
she did all that stuff. I mean, I didn't, you know, later on we had a strategic plan and the slogan was we want to be a lawyer led professionally managed law firm. And that's exactly how I, I viewed it, that she was a CPA and she was good at business and I wasn't. But what I wanted to do, what I thought was important was figure out a way to get the Florida offices working together and figure out a way for all of us to take advantage of the Foley platform and be seen as potential collaborators with our principally Milwaukee partners on these big national client relationships that existed so that we could frankly, get into a rate structure that was more consistent with the fully economic model. And so we started having these Florida meetings and and we started promoting, you know, that we did this great ad campaign called We're Foley, We're Florida, because we didn't want to be perceived as a out of Florida firm at first. So we, we went to our most iconic clients, Hard Rock Cafe, Jacksonville Jaguars, Ron John Surf Shop, we teamed with them. And so I remember this one ad in Florida trend and it said, um, Foley and hard, let's see, what, what was the slogan? I don't know. It was, uh, it was some hip thing and it was us and hard rock cafe and it was us and the Jacksonville Jaguars. That was sort of the first step in, we were going to be more than just the offices. And we were at that point, the idea was the way to be like Foley Milwaukee was to be dominant in a state. And so we were the largest non-Florida-based Florida law firm. And so we really, so I and the other OMPs really were about that. And we started inviting the management committee down to the Florida meetings. And we would put the statistics up on the board as to how profitable we were. And we'd show them who the clients were. Because, I mean, honest to God, they didn't really know who we had down here, you know. And, and um, so that really changed the relationship between the Florida offices and the big firm. There's so much work that has to go in to make these big firms really cohesive. And as you were saying that, I'm almost like Ed had to walk so that name the other Florida OMPs could run so that we could be even more cohesive. One firm, which was our big, our our slogan. Yes, but it takes time to get there. It takes time. And we became pretty well known then in Florida. And so we would have the our holiday parties here in the History Center. And we, both of the U.S. senators would come. Obviously, the mayor would come, you know, and that was just not something that... Well, and so you managed to eventually get out of the office managing partner role of Orlando. And at some point, we sweep you into being on the management committee. I was both. And matter of fact, I was OMP and I was on the management committee and I was running pro bono at the same time. Oh my goodness. And we will not have time to unpack all that. But for listeners, I will say Foley has a 12 person management committee. For a little while, we had 13 people. I think we're going back to 12. And we also do have a a CEO and chairman and managing partner for those curious about our structure. So it is certainly also, you know, tremendous to be a member of the firm's management committee. I've had, and I'm going to have other management committee members on, but that I will only have you and a few others who so represent pro bono at Foley. So let's talk about that. I do have one really noteworthy achievement as a management committee member. I was chair of the comp committee in 2009, which was the worst year, sort of year to year in the history of Foley. The unit values, unit shares decreased 13.9% the year I was on the comp committee, the year I was in charge of the comp committee. So 
again, you know, these things happen in your life that difficult things to navigate. Once again, for those who don't understand what Ed's saying, that is great recession era. That is everything. Things weren't great. Let's call it 2009, 2010, a little bit 2008. Part of me, and I don't mean to belittle it, is almost like 13%. That's all because, you know, what my understanding of fully navigating that, there's a lot of really hard decisions. But there's also firms who would have been like, well, this person's comp's not going to change at all, but all these people need to leave. And I know ultimately some hard decisions were made at Foley, but I also know Foley puts people first and did everything it could to not be in that situation. We had people that had zero whose practices went to nothing, and we protected them for two years. That's just, that's fully, you know, the myth is true. I've seen it. I was there. Yes. Well, I mean, you see me just nodding and we won't we won't talk a ton about this, but for me, the culture and focus on people first has to be what we're focused on for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts to be successful. And so while I help fully elevate all that, I know the heart of the firm is in the right place, right? There's things we may do to improve on the execution, but what you just said was not the case <laughs> at many other law firms during that time. And I think it's important for people to understand. And frankly, Foley's exhibited that multiple times, you know, in a variety of ways of really doing what it can, you know, to protect people. On the sort of people level. So, you know, you think of the management committee being these Uber, you know, type A people that, you know, are driven and all this. So quick aside. I'm up at Foley uh, or Management Committee Retreat in Kohler, Wisconsin, and it's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday thing. And so Friday night, I get a call that my dad is um, dying somewhat unexpectedly. So one of the guys on the Management Committee gives me his car. We're in Kohler. I drive to Milwaukee. They they got me a plane ticket. So I got to Milwaukee. Boom. Got back to Washington, saw my dad before he passed, and um, my mom wanted to move things rapidly for the funeral. So the wake was Monday night. I go into the funeral home, and there's like an incomprehensible volume of flowers from people in the firm, and Rick Weiss and Jay Varen are there. Now, that's the Monday after you know, they had just come back from the retreat on Sunday and they live over on the Maryland side of DC. We were in Fairfax County. It's six o'clock at night. So they drove through that traffic. They were there at my dad's wake. Wow. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I've seen time and time again, just really putting people first. It's tough, this dichotomy between we're a big law firm, but we never want to lose that part of who we are. And sometimes depending on what it is that happened is I'm not able to share those stories, right? Because often it's something very, you know, close to someone that I'm not going to say, well, did you hear about the time this happened to so-and-so in the firm? I simply can't. That would be breaching confidences. But it's that very much does show, I think, who Foley is. And I will say we're going to go just a little bit long because, like I said, we you have to talk pro bono. So hopefully, hopefully listeners stick with us. But talk to me a little bit about I'm not sure if I want to say the I don't know if it's the genesis of some of Foley's pro bono efforts or your role, but definitely say what, what you'd like to highlight about pro bono at Foley and Lardner. So Foley, Milwaukee had always been a very community service oriented thing. I mean, every major board, you know, of every charity or whatever, there was a Foley person. But for whatever reason, pro bono legal service was not, we had a pro bono program, but it wasn't uh, given the same attention. Jim Bierman 
retired partner in our DC office had started it and it was and really created the bones of you know what we had, established the policy and so forth. And in um, as I said, I guess at the retreat. Ralph Bohr and I were riding to the airport from the Boston office. And, and Ralph's also former CEO of Foley. Yeah, in 2006. And and uh, he said to me, um, you know, we're on this quest to be one of the best law firms in the country. And it's obvious to me that the best law firms in the country have the best pro bono programs. And I want you to run it. And I want you to make our program one of the best pro bono programs in the country. And as I said, the first time that I spoke to the partnership after that, it was like the best job I could possibly ever got, get because all I had to do, I got to work with the smartest people in an environment that had substantial administrative and professional support. And all I had to do was create opportunities for people to do exactly what they wanted to do anyway. And um, I said, you know, I couldn't have an easier job. You know, our approach was really we wanted to make it safe to talk about pro bono. That was sort of our slogan. So the idea was that at every office meeting, at every department meeting, at every firm meeting, we were going to talk about pro bono. And we were going to we were going to celebrate success in the pro bono world, just like we did in our commercial cases. And we were going to commit ourselves to making our pro bono program commensurate with our commercial practice. And, um, you know, we don't have any requirements. We don't have any staff. We don't have really any budget. And we never have. We never have. And it's the flattest organizational structure you could possibly imagine. We've had these fabulous office chairs from the beginning. And uh, what I wanted to do, though, was populate our committee with people that had were considered to be good lawyer, really good lawyers, people that had commercial credibility, because I didn't want people to think of pro bono service as this, this sort of ancillary thing that exists for hippies in the firm like me, you know, and I've almost said the exact same thing about diversity and inclusion. It's a little bit different, but I could almost say the same thing. It's the same concept. So those folks have done everything that has happened at this program has bubbled up. There's there's no top down here at all. And, you know, the, the sort of statistics speak for themselves. But please as, share some of the things you just highlighted a few weeks back at our, the all attorney retreat. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, we started out, we were ranked uh, number 119 in the AMLAW 200 in, in terms of pro bono programs. Within a very, I don't know, it was three years, we eventually got to number 37. We started out with 41% of our lawyers involved in pro bono work, been at 90 for the last 10 years or something. The CEO, obviously, is a, uh, the current CEO, Daoji, big supporter, has done 50 plus hours. We've averaged something around 40,000 pro bono hours a year over the 16 year period that I've been running. Well, I've been allowed to be one of the leaders. And, um, you know, depending about what bill the rate you use is you know, 300 million dollars that's a tremendous amount of money and you know it's so funny and i can't remember if i said this at the retreat but you know a lot of the times that i've addressed the group on pro bono it's been like well we got to do more we got to do more you know we're not as good as this firm we're not as good as that firm but you know when i was thinking about this one and i was thinking about one team 
and I was thinking about us getting back together after having been apart for so long. And, and honestly, I was thinking about the end of my time here. And I thought, you know, we got to talk about what we did, what we've done right. This is not a contest. This is a part of our fabric. And this is just part of our culture now. And I thought we ought to, for once, take a minute and reflect a little bit upon you know, like I said, the lives that we've changed. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your tremendous efforts in making it a part of the fabric at, at Foley. I think a few other quick things to highlight that within the last few years in response to the you know racial justice movement and everything, Foley also established what was originally a racial justice and equity pro bono practice group. It was modeled on um, we have an asylum pro bono practice group. But I know I know the racial justice and equity practice group has since gotten a few mat few paid matters. So the pro bono part doesn't even apply as much anymore. But Foley's continued to innovate and, you know, to really allow the work we do in that space, like you said, to reflect what the interests are and where the the need is in the world. And, you know, that's a testament to your leadership and the rest of the pro bono committee's leadership. And it's definitely worth reflecting and pausing on what we've done right, because there's been a lot and we know a lot of that is thanks to you, Ed. That's very generous. The reality is that, you know, I get to be the face man. They probably could have picked a better face, but I, I get to be the face man. And, you know, you mentioned the asylum group. Well, there's Larry Krause, you know, in Boston, and he just, he and the like-minded people started that group. I don't know, 10 years ago or something. And they just work together and, you know, they don't, there's no pay. There's no, and there's really not even any recognition. They just do just it. Just get it done. I had a long talk with Larry at the retreat, by the way. <laughs> the side note is Asia Joseph on my team originally started as being his legal admin and I pulled her over and he forgave me because Asia is one of the best <laughs> things ever. That's probably happened to me in my life. But we, but so I, Larry and I had a good long talk just a few weeks ago. <laughs> good. He's such a good man. And he's just an example of, you know, it's been a repetitive thing. I, I mentioned Will, I, well, I didn't call it by name, but, you know, Wills for Heroes was a program that Chris Havlick up in Milwaukee started. And initially it was um, advanced directives and estate planning for first responders. And then during COVID, she came up with this idea that these frontline healthcare workers, you know, were really afraid, you know, and were they going to get COVID? And were they going to die, you know, and what was going to happen? But yet we couldn't go out and see people because it was COVID. And so she and some other people figured out how to connect digitally with these nurses and ER workers and so forth. And and I feel like there's so many stories, I'm sure, like that across the firm, across the years of people identifying a need and then being able to connect the firm to help to address whatever and, that may and be. And like I say, it, it's always the same way. It always it comes from from the offices and from the people. It, it, it's nobody uh, sitting in my chair is kicking out these brilliant ideas. They they are uh, they're coming from these folks. So it's uh, man, it's all good, really good. Well, I'm so happy I was able to get you to elaborate on that. But as we wind down, I also want to give you an opportunity to provide some of your advice, you know, words of wisdom to that, you know, that maybe that law student or that person early in their career. And one thing I will say, Ed, before I let you go and give you a response to that is, listeners may know, we didn't even dig into the ins and outs of what it means to be a complex commercial litigator. I have some other guests who talk a little bit more specifically about their practice, but I think so many of the things we have talked about today are so important and frankly, only things that you could give that perspective on. So, you know, if you do want to hear more about, like, I want to hear about the details of litigation, you know, 
please scroll through the many other episodes. But yes, Ed, what is your your advice to that that person early in their career, that law student? It's it's hard because there's a saying in sports about the game slowing down for her or the game slowing down for him. And what it is meant to communicate is that when you're a rookie, you know, and you come in, it's just like all this stuff going on and you're rushed and you, you can't focus and you can't like, you're not seeing the big picture. It's, it's just like when you and I went to law school, just exactly what we were talking about. And, you know, one of the benefits of uh, age is this game slows down this game slows down and you begin to see the things that are really important. And, you know, let me just start with a little bit of a commercial, which is, you know, the farthest thing from my mind right now, as I look back on my career is the, the big clients that I didn't land or the, the compensation units that I didn't get, or, I mean, it's easy for me to say, cause we all make so much money. But the point being what I reflect upon and what is important is that I'm a good lawyer and I'm regarded by my peers as a good lawyer and not just somebody who has the skill set, but somebody who has behaved in an ethical manner. And, you know, sometimes in our training, we sort of take that for granted. We, we, we say the consultants have told us that the clients take quality legal work for granted, that they expect whether they're going to our firm or some other firm, everybody's going to be good. But that doesn't mean that being good is automatic for us. You have got to be, it's your craft, it's your profession. And so it's easy to get, we, you know, the pendulum swings in terms of what we emphasize. And we emphasize, we call ourselves an industry now. Screw that. We're a profession, right? And you cannot ignore the building blocks of becoming a good lawyer. So I I would say that's my sort of fundamental piece of advice. And the other thing is to regard yourself, just being a lawyer is an important thing. You know, I, a couple of years back, I was talking on uh, Martin Luther King Day and I, I watched the speech every year. And one thing that is abundantly clear when you watch that speech is that this is the quintessential American speech. This is a speech about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. It's not a speech about getting rid of the bedrock of this country. It's about living up to our ideals. And the number of times that Dr. King said the word justice, you know, what I say is that we as lawyers have the keys to the bank of justice. And it's in the Constitution. I mean, everything that we that we hold dear in this country. Lawyers are supposed to safeguard it. And, you know, that's true of IP lawyers. It's true of business lawyers. It's true of litigators. You know, when you, when you protect somebody's intellectual property, you're vindicating that person's constitutional rights. You know, when you preserve someone's hard work, you know, the fruits of uh, her, his hard work, you know, you're an essential part of this country. And I think that if you view yourself as an amalgam of billable hours or as a tier three or tier seven or whatever, you're just missing, you're just missing the deal. It's not just about the money and what clients you didn't land. There's so much more to it. I love what you said about the game slowing down. I also think this idea of, you know, we're, we're stewards of so much 
And in a way, you know, maybe we're getting a little highfalutin here when we say this, but the role is to hopefully help help this country stay in line with some of those values, maybe better express them, maybe better reach them, which I think is an absolutely perfect note to end on. And Ed, my final, final question for you is, if listeners want to reach out with questions or comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Oh, yeah. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, sure. Well, I hope they take you up on that. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Ed. (laughs) All right. That was fun. See you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.